0: This podcast is a presentation of Sunset Presbyterian Church. For more information, log on to our website at www.sunsetpres.org. Well, this morning we're continuing our sermon series on the book of Judges. And the story that I have to tell starts 1,100 years before the time of Jesus' birth. It's a story of a battle or at least that's where part of the story happens. And I envision this I envision this scene of two armies facing each other across a barren desert and behind the lines of one of these armies I'm absolutely certain there's a nice leaders tent in which the the heads of this nation are trying to plan their strategy. I'm sure that is happening. And as they plan in this tent they are contemplating the idea that for years they have been dominated by that other nation, dreaming of the day when they could stand up and throw off the yoke that that nation has imposed upon them. But they're not quite sure how to do it. They've prayed to God for direction and they have tried to understand how God might be leading them. And yet as the reports keep coming in, the The information is dire, and it doesn't look like God's going to raise his hand to deliver the nation again. There's thousands relying on their judgment, and they don't know what to do next. And so I wonder if we need to step back for a moment and ask, how did we get to this point? We're about to delve into the story of a judge you probably haven't heard before. You've heard of Deborah. You've heard of Samson who's coming next week. You've heard of Gideon who we had last week. If you know anything about the Bible, you know these stories. Most likely, you've not heard of Jephthah, the judge for this week. And there's a good reason that you have not heard of him, despite the fact that we'll draw some amazing conclusions from his life. So I'm going to pick up the story in Judges chapter 10. The verses will be on the screen behind me. If you like to try to follow us bouncing around in verses, the the story is in chapter 10 and 11 of the book of Judges. But I'll put up the verses I read behind me. So here's the context of the scene. Verse 6. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. I'm pretty sure we've read that exact sentence four or five times already in this series from different places. They served the Baals and the gods of Ammonites and the gods of the Philistines, and there's a whole list of others. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served Him, He became angry with them, and He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years they oppressed all the Israelites. Israel was in great distress." Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, We have sinned against you, forsaking our gods and serving the Baals. We've seen this movie in the book of Judges before. This is the pattern that we've been talking about. The Israelites, do they turn away from God, they do bad things. They realize that they are in trouble, and they cry out to God for his deliverance, who responds by calling a judge who wins some sort of a battle and then brings peace to the land for as long as that judge lives. This is the pattern we've seen over and over and over again in the book of Judges. But this time is different. Verse 11 The Lord replied, When the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites and the Mayanites oppressed you and you cried to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you're in trouble." That's a hard verse, isn't it? set of verses. Don't get me wrong, I'm completely in agreement that God should have said this to, some, to the nation of Israel a couple of times ago. But as I said when I preached the last time, it's a good thing I'm not God. I have far less patience than He does. But here, well, we've got to admit that God seems a little unloving. Even grumpy. Kind of annoyed. And this is not the way we like to think about God, is it? We prefer to see Him as the God of mercy and grace and love towards us. And and here He shows up as a little harsh. A difficult set of verses. But as we're going to see, this is really still the picture of a God who's deeply in love with His people. Sometimes, like a parent, his love must take a little bit tougher approach than perhaps we might like to see. But always for our good and always for our growth in him. You see, what God knows and what we can see from the verses that follow is that this cry for help is not really a cry of repentance. Not yet. It'll get there. But it sounds good, and in fact, the cry is more like a cry out to a genie in a bottle. I'm in trouble, and I want to rub this bottle and get what I want so I can go back to doing what I was doing before. This is not a cry of repentance. It's just a cry for help. And God knows that there's more work to be done here. We've seen it over and over again in, in the book of Judges, but really in the entire Bible, that God's, God's in the business of changing people's hearts, not getting them out of trouble. Always for their good. Always for their growth. He will push and prod and even get tough, if necessary, to bring people back to Himself. To himself. Bring people to turn towards Him. And the good part of this, I guess, is that it shows that he will never, ever give up on his people. Even if that means a bit of tough love. Now, I know that all this is happening in these verses because what you'll see as you skip down to the very next verse is that there must have been a lot of unwritten stuff going on between the prayer of verse 14 and the prayer of verse 15. They're totally different. Look at the prayer one verse later. Clearly, the Israelites got the message. But the Israelites said to the Lord, We've sinned. Do with us whatever you think is best. But please rescue us now. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them, and they served the Lord, and He he could bear Israel's misery no longer. And I told you this was the story of a God who was in love with His people. Here's the proof. Something happened between those verses and the people got the message. And now they pray a a very different prayer. God, do with us what you think is best, but we'd like it if you bail us out. It's okay to pray for being bailed out. But they're praying a true prayer now of repentance. A prayer that God hears. And acts upon and says, I can't bear to see you in misery anymore. And all we see that all God ever really wants is for us to return to loving Him, return to relationship with Him, even if we've turned away for a long time. And because they've done so, they're about to experience a massive victory just like they have multiple times before in the book of Judges. But before we proceed with the account of the rest of the story, I want you to notice what leads to the victory. What gives the people the victory? Notice, please, that they have no leader yet. They have no strategy. They have no vision. They have no plan of any sort that we can tell. All of the things that we would do and none of them bad. It's not great intelligence or top-notch charisma. What changes things, what wins the battle, is a heartfelt prayer of repentance. Boy, I confess that that's sometimes the last thing I do. I throw in the prayer after I've done all the planning. Just to make sure. But that's what changes things here. A Heartfelt Prayer of Repentance. An incredible lesson for us. And as I was writing my sermon, I thought, time to pray, really. And offer that sort of a prayer. So Father, thank You for reminding us through the story of the book of Judges that it's not through our work, it's always through Yours that spiritual victories are won. And so this morning as we contemplate our lives, and the life of our church, and the future of of our church, and all of the things that we're involved in, Lord, we want to repent of thinking that it's about us. Ask your forgiveness for thinking that it's about leaders, or strategies, or plans, and recognize that it's about following you with all of our hearts, all of our minds, and all of our strength. Will you help us to do that? as individuals, as followers of Jesus Christ, and as a church body. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Which brings me all the way back to the tent on the battlefield where we began the story. The leaders of the army still sit there. Oh, they've prayed now. Without a plan still. Without a deliverer groping for an idea. Any idea that will help them to come up with what to do next. And this should be a movie because the next thing that happens is someone in the tent says i got an idea there's a guy i know this is starting to sound this never goes well there's a guy i know who would be perfect for this job of leading the nation he's a mighty warrior he has a few things on his resume that uh, we may need to overlook. He, nobody knows who his father is, and his mom was a prostitute. A little bit of a problem. Uh, also, he got kicked out of his house when he was uh, growing up, and he went off and became a criminal, and now he's a crime lord. With people following him and just uh, stealing from folks, probably most of our army thinks he should be in jail, not leading us. Oh, and one other thing. We, one of the leaders of this nation of Israel who's making this decision, is a half-brother of this guy who was the person responsible for kicking him out of his house. might be a little hard to recruit him. This is the Judge Jephthah. And there's a good reason you don't know the story. He's not a good judge. And he has a horrible resume. And therefore we focus on stories that are fun and good. And inspire us. But, here's Jephthah. He's not even chosen by God. Like all the other judges were. Who chooses him to lead? The political leaders. And I'm going to make a very bipartisan statement right now. When they choose, things don't always go like we'd like them to. So this can't possibly go well until we get to verse 29 of Judges 11. It says, Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. A simple sentence with massive implications, which is that the battle that's going to come up is over. God's going to win it. His spirit is on the leader. He will give the victory. And it's worth remembering now, I think, again, that the reason for this victory is a, is a heartfelt prayer of repentance. Repentance. We've seen over and over and over again in the book of Judges that God wins the spiritual victories. He has used horrible strategies. He's used flawed leaders. He's used bad plans. And he's used poor decisions. He uses whatever he wants, frankly. And he gets the glory. He's the one who gets the praise. Because nobody else could make any good out of these situations. God alone wins spiritual victories. But Jephthah has a problem here. He doesn't realize that this is what, how things work, I guess. And he makes a huge mistake. He tries to hedge his bets, which I've done a time or two. I believe that God will do something, but I just try to help him out a little bit. You ever been in that spot? Jephthah, well, it says in verse 30, he says to God, if you give the Ammonites into my hands, then whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Now remember, God's already, His Spirit has already come on Jephthah. This battle is over. There's no reason for this sort of posturing. Or bargaining with God. But Jephthah, well, this just doesn't sound like a good idea right from the start. And there's a whole set of verses now which I'll let you read about how the battle goes on. But here's the bottom line. Jephthah goes out to fight. He wins a great battle. The Lord gives him a complete victory over the Ammonites. He returns home the victorious judge. Of Israel, after which, if we're following the pattern, should follow peace. But it doesn't. Judges eleven thirty-four. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to greet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of tambourines? She was an only child, when he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried. Oh no, my daughter, you have brought me down and I am devastated. I've made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. If you keep reading, his daughter is pretty remarkable. She says, you have to keep your word. And she asks for two months to mourn, upon which she returns to her father and he carries out his vow. Some have argued that Jephthah didn't really kill his daughter, that he only vowed to sacrifice her ability to marry in the future. Might be. I think after reading all the commentary, he probably actually did kill his daughter. But the story is the same either way. He made a horrible decision to try to bargain with God and try to earn God's favor. So why does he do it? There's lessons to be learned here. Things to be avoided, I think, in the story of Jephthah. Because Jephthah must have been completely desensitized to the violence and, and that was around him in his culture. The cruelty that was there. He must have known how God felt about child sacrifice. Deuteronomy 12.31 says, You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, their being the people who were living in the land around the Israelites. Because in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things that the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. And if my understanding of the commentary is right, that's exactly what Jephthah is doing. He's following what he's seen observed in the culture around him. He has some correct views and truth in his understanding of God, but mixed in with the good is some of the stuff that the culture has brought to him. Ways in which you worship your God. Ways in which you live your life. And that has come alongside and started to infiltrate his mind. Do you think that happens today? Oh, we certainly aren't going to go out and sacrifice any child. But do you suppose that we pick up erroneous beliefs along with our true ones? And these erroneous beliefs that are pounded into us from our culture, usually around the ideas of money and power and sex that come to infiltrate our minds. Which is why Paul writes in Romans 12, 12, 12, 12-2, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Today, when when we get taken in by these cultural beliefs, occasionally they they lead to the same thing that happened to Jephthah. Self-imposed destruction. Self-imposed destruction. He also, I think, did it because he misunderstood God's character. He thought that God needed to be impressed or bought by His incredible gift of faith. He believed that God would use him or love him more if he went all the way. And as I've already suggested, the big tragedy of this story is that God had already chosen him. Nothing Jephthah could do or would do would earn more of God's favor. It gets even worse at the end of the story. One of the tribes of Israel is called the Ephraimites. And if you kept reading into chapter 11, you'd find out the story of how they got angry that they missed out on the glory of this major battle. They threatened the life of Jephthah. They're the same country. But Jephthah's response adds to the tragedy of his life. Judges 12.4 says, He then called together the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim and struck them down because they insulted him. And later verses say that 42,000 of his own countrymen died at his hands that day. Unsurprisingly then, the account of this judge, Jephthah, who you've probably never heard of, is because, the Bible says, he ruled for six years and never suggests that peace ever came on the land. So what lessons can we learn from this tragic hero? He won a battle. God's Spirit came upon him for a while. And yet he destroyed himself in the end. We could focus on the lesson of being careful with the words you say, which would be a pretty good lesson from the story of Jephthah. We could also notice that God can use leaders and that doesn't even tell us anything about their spiritual maturity, which might be a good lesson as well to remind us not to worship humans. But there are, I think, more personal lessons from the life of Jephthah. One is how easy it is to be affected more by our culture than it is by the truths of Scripture. Jephthah had some of the Bible. He had enough to know the character of God, and yet, he let what people were saying and thinking around him impact him too much. And that makes me wonder about myself. Perhaps... I need to prayerfully consider and maybe you would want to join me in saying, what enormous spiritual blind spot do I have? Because of the culture I live in. Because of what I hear and am filled with around me. What blind spot do I have? Jephthah had a huge one. And I could give you a list of possibilities. I'd rather you go and read the Scripture yourself. And search through the Word of God asking Him to reveal to you where you have missed the mark because of the influence of the world we all live in. Which isn't even necessarily a bad thing. It just, cha- it just impacts us. The other lesson is how hard it is to believe in a God of grace. Since the beginning, humans have always felt the need to earn favor from God. To do things. To get Him to love us. And I wonder... Again, a personal question. In what ways would I live differently if I really believed that God was committed to loving me and blessing me and providing what's best for me even when it didn't match up to what I would have picked? I wonder how that would feel to be all in on believing that God has the best for me. So far, this passage has been really bleak. There's a reason you don't hear much about Jephthah. I read it at first and thought, what am I going to say about this? But there's some good stuff in here and I can even pull out a few things here at the end to give us hope. Some of them I've already alluded to a little bit. Number one is, God used Jephthah. His Spirit came upon... He didn't even choose him. Human leaders chose Jephthah. But God in His grace and mercy decided to save Israel and to do it through Jephthah, a guy who had a horrible resume and a, worse, a bad past and a worse uh, present and future. This was a bad guy who God used. And that gives me hope that God can, does, will use all of us as well. No matter what you think you've done, that disqualifies you from being used by him. There's another surprise. Jephthah, well, his name shows up in the most unlikely of places. For those of you who know the Bible, you might recognize when I say Hebrews chapter 11. It's a listing of the heroes of the faith. There's a long list of people. And in that list right next to a couple other judges, appears the name of Jephthah. A hero of the faith? A probable killer of his daughter and of 42,000 of his countrymen? A criminal? How can this guy be a hero? He's a hero because of the same reason everybody's on that list. He's a hero because God, he believed in God and God credited it to him as righteousness. He was not righteous. Clearly not. Neither is anybody else on that list. Neither are you, neither are me. Neither am I. I come to church every week in a nice suit when I preach and I look good and I pretend like I have it all together, but it's a fake. I'm not righteous. And you try to do the same thing if you're honest. Look like we're all good people. And the Bible says not one of us is righteous. There's only one reason you appear on the list of the heroes of the faith and that's because you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and there's a theological term for it. He has imputed His righteousness to you. He earned it. Jesus earned it. And He gives it to you. Why? Because He loves you. Because of His grace and His mercy. And that's so unfathomable we'll never really be able to understand it. That's the reason you end up on the list of the, of the heroes of the faith. That's the reason Jephthah's there. And by the way, if it offends you that he's there after killing 42,000 of his countrymen, then that means your view of grace is not big enough. Not big enough. Because the truth of it is that God says, no matter what you've done, no matter what you will do, no matter the sin and the way in which you have turned against him, with faith in Jesus Christ, you get His his righteousness. That's the huge hope in the story of Jephthah. The final surprise is that God really uses Jephthah like He does all the other judges to point towards the true judge, the true provider of deliverance, the one who will provide peace, and I guess you could say until He dies because He never will. All these judges provide a pointing toward Jesus Christ. A little glimpse. Hugely imperfect glimpse. But just a point towards Jesus Christ. Jephthah is homeless. He's illegitimate. He does all sorts of horrible things. Jesus doesn't do the horrible things, but he's homeless. He's illegitimate in the world's eyes. And Jephthah points to the fact that someday we'll have a judge who will provide peace. But don't ever look to a human leader to do it. It's the story of Jephthah. An amazing story, actually, for you and me as we think about our own lives. That God is a God who is drawing us to Himself always for our good and always for our growth. We've got one song here at the end of the service and I'd love to invite anybody who would like to to go over to our corner here and pray. Some of our elders and prayer team members will be over there to join with you. There may be somebody here who says, I have never really taken that step of faith and trust in Jesus to gain His righteousness. Go over and talk to somebody if you're, if you're there. There may be somebody here who says, I've been running for God for a long time because I've done horrible things. Well, the story of Jephthah says never never horrible enough to be beyond the grace of God. If that's you, go over and talk to somebody. And perhaps you've come here with some other burden that I've not talked about today. We welcome you over to pray as well as we sing this final song. For the benediction, as I was thinking about what we were talking about today, my mind kept getting uh, pulled back to a really famous psalm. Many of you will probably recognize it. I'm going to read portions of it as We do our benediction. The Lord is my shepherd, and I lack nothing. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for His rod and His staff comfort me. God bless you. Have a great week.